Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Charles Lamont, who's a think tank veteran and a former senior economic advisor to successive finance ministers in Ontario's Ford government. He's one of the most interesting and insightful policy thinkers that I know. I suppose in the name of full disclosure, he's also a good friend of mine. His son, Christian, was the ring bearer at my wedding. I've asked Charles to join me today for a free-flowing conversation about a range of topics. But in particular, I wanted to get his perspective on the experience of going from the think tank world into politics, including what, in hindsight, he wished he had known as a think tank scholar about government policymaking, what surprised him about politics, and why so few people go back and forth between these two worlds. Charles, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean, for having me on the podcast. It's a real privilege to be with you. As you know, I'm a Long-time listener, first-time caller, and a big fan of uh, what you and the team are doing at the Hub. It's really important work, and I hope you keep it up. Thanks for having me. Let's start with my point about how it's uncommon in Canada to see policy scholars go from think tanks or universities into politics. This stands in contrast with the United States, where it's highly common for policy experts to move back and forth from these different worlds, depending on which party is in power. I think, for instance, of Glenn Hubbard at Columbia University, who served in the Bush administration, or Jason Furman at Harvard, who served in the Obama administration, though there are countless other examples. Why do you think this is less common in Canada? What explains the uniqueness of your experience? I think it's a good question, Sean. You know, I'm not sure that the issue uh, in Canada is that it's less common. You know, I don't want to name names, but I do see policy scholars making the switch. I think in my view, the issue seems to be that Canadians are less open about it or less willing to promote their efforts in government, particularly if that uh, role is a political one. I think this speaks more to Canada's moderate impulse than an unwillingness and and more than uh, more of an unwillingness to state a political or ideological bias. You know, when it comes to Think tank scholars in particular, I think some of that unwillingness has its roots in the prohibition on nonprofits with charitable status to engage in political activity. I think this imposes a fear among many think tank scholars to take political positions or to get politically involved because they worry about losing charitable status and the tax receipts that come with it. Now, that might be changing in the future, and you'll know more about that than than I do. Um, but, you know, I think the, 
the restrictions on not-for-profits has probably reduced the incentive for uh, think tank scholars uh, to make the move. You know, this is speculative, but I also think that scholars in Canada worry about the political labels uh, that they would get reducing their credibility. Um, either way, whether we see this movement um, a lot in Canada or not, I do think governments would benefit from seeing uh, more switching from both academics and think tank scholars. I think it would be good for public policy and I think it would be good for the individuals themselves. You know, you could think of like a secondment, for instance, um, having uh, significant benefits to the nation. You know, you get more experienced political staff that have experience on, on the ideation and, and analysis front, which I think is currently lacking in government, at least from my experience. And you'd have, you know, we have a lot of smart and, and very uh, ambitious political staff in government. But the challenge oftentimes is that they lack the experience in public policy to drive meaningful change from the inside. So as a result of that, you get policies that tend to be driven by a combination of stakeholders, the civil service, sometimes uh, partisanship or, or people's impulses. And I think having... Uh, Scholars uh, do secondments in the civil service uh, as well would, would be beneficial. Um, you know, sometimes uh, while the civil service is uh, fantastic and, and highly qualified, they know their files and processes very well, you know, they, they may not uh, be willing to stick their neck out uh, because of the institutional environment that they work in. So you get less uh, policy entrepreneurship and innovation. And I think getting more people to make that switch uh, both on the political and civil service side could have great benefits uh, for the country. And of course, the people themselves uh, will benefit from the exposure uh, in government. So I do think it should happen more often, uh, putting aside whether, whether in fact, empirically it, it does or not. Prior to taking a job in the Ontario government, you had spent more than a decade in the think tank world and published a number of influential studies why did you want to take the leap from the world of policy ideation to policy development and implementation? What motivated you, Charles, to cross this Rubicon? Well, I had considered making the jump at various points in my career. Advice from friends like you and others, you know, made uh, a stint in government, uh, made me think that a stint in government would make me a better policy professional. So when the stars lined up, I decided to take the plunge. You know, we, we had recently moved at the time uh, back in 2018 uh, to Toronto from Vancouver. And there was a reform-minded uh, government that had just come into power at Queen's Park. I was a bit late to the game. The government was in power for almost six months when I joined. And that was a lesson in and of itself. Um, I would say that, you know, a lot of the government's uh, mandate had already been set uh, by the time that I joined uh, through a combination of things like its election platform and the mandate letters for individual ministers. And for someone who wanted to, to make an impact, in hindsight, I think those things matter a lot uh, in terms of someone's ability to affect change. You know, nonetheless, I was offered a position to lead uh, policy for Minister uh, Christine Elliott, who was then the minister charged with uh, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care uh, in Ontario. And a year, a year later, I made the transition to the Ministry of Finance to lead the government's policy and budget work uh, from the minister's office. Well, well, you certainly have a clear set of policy preferences. You had no partisan experience, and I don't think of you as a partisan person. What was it like for a policy wonk to step into a partisan environment? 
No, Sean, um, one of the things that struck me most about my move into government was how nonpartisan or how weakly partisan many of the participants were. Uh, you know, of course, you have some of the diehard partisans, uh, but I felt like they were more of the exception than the norm, uh, in my experience. You know, most political staff and ministers tended to be pretty middle of the road. Um, you know, I don't know if this is the norm or if it was circumstantial. You know, perhaps, you know, my experience was driven by the fact that, you know, the PCs hadn't formed government for 15 years. So this was the first time they were in government for some time. Uh, it could be uh, a reflection of the party leader. Uh, it could be uh, the disposition of those who were elected uh, to, to the provincial parliament. I don't have a clear answer, but, but one thing as I think back on my experience is that, you know, the level of partisanship was perhaps lower than I had expected. Yeah, just in parentheses, one wonders too, Charles, how much of that reflected the unique set of circumstances during your time in government, including, of course, the pandemic, which sort of trumped ideology in partisanship in, in some ways. You ultimately spent roughly three years in the government, including, as you mentioned, serving two finance ministers in a, a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, what did you come to understand about government and public policy that you previously didn't as an external policy scholar? And two, what do you think that think tanks need to understand about government policymaking in order to make a greater impact on the policy landscape? Oh, so uh, that's a that's a really it's uh, a really good question. Um, you know, obviously, I, I learned a lot um, during my time, and I was fortunate uh, to hold uh, senior roles at the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Finance with with a lot of engagement with the, the premier and, and his staff. Um, I would say that uh, because of that, uh, because of those roles, I was afforded a front row seat to sort of major uh, developments and, and decisions. Um, I, of course, I can't disclose anything confidential, but but I think what I learned the most um, at my time uh, in the government was how the machinery of government works and how uh, decisions uh, get made, both uh, small and large uh, ones. And just, you know, when you're an outsider, you know, there's so much that happens within government that you just either are, are unaware of, or you don't really appreciate. So I've gained a a greater appreciation of just the just the regular processes of you know getting uh, a policy implemented, um, how it has to go through various you know decision making bodies, the the treasury board, the cabinet table, etc. So those those are some pretty important lessons. Um, what would I, you know, to, to your second question about what do I think think tanks need to understand uh, to have a greater impact? My sense would be that you attract more bees with honey. Um, and so what I mean by that is that uh, oftentimes when you're on the outside um, critiquing a government, I think it's it's probably uh, a better strategy to understand the challenges that governments are are confronting uh, on the inside and and to try to be a you know to give a bit more benefit of the doubt. Uh, to the issues that that governments are confronting. You now, I, I would use um, you know Bill Morneau as an example. Of course, recently, you know, he's come out talking about the importance of things um, like competitiveness and driving uh, business investment, things that 
he was mostly silent on when he was a uh, finance minister. And he's, you know, received a lot of criticism for that. I think, uh, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt and understanding perhaps in, in, you know, when he was the minister of finance, there were significant pressures perhaps coming from uh, the prime minister's office or, or, or from the center generally about, you know, what to prioritize. And sometimes, you know, the minister charged with uh, the file uh, may uh, deprioritize or have to uh, prioritize other things. So having a bit more um, understanding of those dynamics uh, so that when you're, you know, perhaps criticizing what governments are doing, you're doing so maybe in a more diplomatic way and understanding the uh, real constraints that they face uh, politically. I think that would be one of the most important things I think think tanks um, should account for. Uh, when they're selecting the issues that they write about, but also in terms of their tone and, and how they uh, they engage uh, governments, uh, sitting governments in particular. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, uh, a bit more empathy um, wouldn't hurt many aspects of uh, Canadian society and, and the world of public policy. And I think this is a, a good example. Let me ask one final question on this set of issues, and then we'll move on to some other topics that I want to put to you today. Do you have any advice for policy people who want to go into government and politics in order to bring expression to their ideas and values, but don't want to get swept up into the hyper-partisanship that can cause one to lose him or herself? How, in other words, Charles, can someone keep their head and stay true to themselves in such a high-paced, high-stakes, us-versus-them environment? Well, I think first off, they should do it. I think uh, I can speak from my own experience, Sean, in that you know my my three years uh, in in government uh, were invaluable. Uh, they made me a better policy professional, um, and I think uh, a more complete and credible one. So, if if folks have you know the desire and opportunity uh, to do a stint in government, I think they absolutely should do it. The, the you know sometimes it can be thankless work. Um, long hours uh, and very in a very challenging environment. But you know, if you're given that opportunity, I think you should jump on it. Uh, it's it's almost like a master class in in public policy, particularly if you're working on the political side. You get uh, you know a peek into a window that uh, you otherwise wouldn't get. You understand how the sausage is made. You understand the uh, real constraints that governments face. Uh, and, and you're better able to uh, position your own ideas in in a way that can resonate uh, more strongly and have greater impact. So I think I think they should do it. Now, how do you do it without getting yourself lost? I think um, if you're coming from it um, for, as a as a policy scholar, you can always kind of put a limit, a time limit, in terms of you know how long you want to serve, uh, so that you're not uh, becoming a, a lifer, uh, so to speak. But I think the the, the 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 bigger point is that if you have the opportunity, um, if the stars align, absolutely take it. Uh, you'll be you'll be a better professional for it. Charles, I said that was my last question about your time in government and politics, and I'm I'm going to transition now to some of the work that you produced as a think tank scholar, and maybe one transition is to kind of contrast the way that policy scholars or experts sometimes think about issues and possible policy policy solutions on one hand and the 
context in which policy development and implementation occurs within government. Do you want to maybe unpack, I think, an insight that you have about some of the different contexts in which policy is thought about and conceived? Yeah, so I think, Sean, that there's a tendency among you know, think tank scholars, uh, among academics, and it's not a criticism, it's just they, they think of first best solutions when they're proposing policy recommendations. I think what my experience taught me quite a bit that, you know, sometimes the second best or third best solution is, 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 is okay. And there are reasons for that. Um, there's reason to think that that's okay, but the real world is messy. Oftentimes there could be impediments that uh, preclude one from moving forward with the first best solution. There could be political, there could be kind of exogenous to the world, the, the external environment. They, they could be, there could be limits on the state's ability, government's ability to administer some of the ideas. So oftentimes you end up in this sort of gray area where um, it may not be the, the best solution, the first idea that's, that's kind of elegant on paper, but you get close to it. And I think that's a lesson that um, is really important. And, and those are, uh, those are they're small wins, uh, and they're oftentimes hard for people to, on the outside to appreciate. But if you're moving uh, the goalpost in that direction, I think it's something that should be, um, you know, that should be praised a bit more than than what it is. And I've gained a greater appreciation for second and third best solutions in the real world. I mentioned as a think tank scholar, you've published dozens of studies. One of the most influential, in fact, one that brought you to my attention before we even knew each other was a November 2012 paper on the state of social mobility in Canada. Let's start with the basic facts, and then I'll ask some political economy questions. What was the study about, Charles, and what were its key findings? Well, um, the study we did, uh, Sean, was kind of circa the Occupy movement uh, back in 2011 after the the great uh, financial uh, recession. And that was a time when people were really concerned about uh, issues related to inequality, you know, in part driven by some of the government response at the the time. So inequality was a salient topic. And and, and one of the things that, you know, me and my colleagues were were thinking about was that, you know, inequality is important, but that's kind of part of the story. We, you know, we don't want to live in a world where, or in a society where, you know, the people that are at the very top of the income ladder are there and they're there in perpetuity. And likewise, or in contrast, people at the bottom stay there forever. If we lived in those, that kind of a society, you know, there would be, there would be cause for concern. And there's some societies out there that are like that. You know, you're born into an income group and you basically stay there. Um, you know, regardless of your efforts, places like Brazil and, and Peru. But in Canada, we we don't have that type of society. So the point of our of our work was to show that you know in Canada, in one's uh, life, they start typically uh, in uh, an income group, but they can rise up over time. And people in the very top income groups can fall into into lower income groups. So this study that we did uh, was uh, one that followed a group of Canadians over the course of some time period. Uh, to see and check in on them at various uh, points in time to see how how their income changed. And what we found in that study was quite remarkable that over the course of an, of an individual's life, about nine of every 10 Canadians that started off in the bottom income group, which is the lowest 20%, 
ended up moving into a higher income group uh, in very short order, sometimes in five years and, and certainly over the course of, of 20 years. Uh, over two decades, we found that they didn't just move up from the bottom to the second lowest, but in many cases, about a quarter of them moved up into the very highest income group. And we thought this was a really important finding because it showed that, you know, over the course of one's life, there's a lot of income mobility. So that you could, you contrast that with the conversation or debate at the time that was really fixated on, on, on inequality. And it showed, I thought, I thought a very positive story about, um, you know, the Canadian dream being alive. People in Canada are not shackled to the income group that they start in. And in fact, we have a lot of uh, mobility over the course of one's life. And either, even when you compare uh, generational mobility, how one does compare to their parents in Canada, uh, fortunately, the connection between the two is, is weak, which means that if you're born into a low-income family, you have uh, the, uh, the opportunity and the data bears this out to move up into higher income groups and to do better than, than your parents. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You mentioned, Charles, that you released the study in the face of new and emerging political attention to income inequality. It seems to me that as an issue, the salience of inequality has persisted. I I think, for instance, um, of Bernie Sanders' uh, political fecundity in the Democratic Party in 2016 and then again in, in 2020. Here in Canada, the Liberal Party came to power in 2015 in part by advancing a message of inequality, including a proposal to raise uh, taxes on Canada's highest earners. Why do you think inequality has become such a major issue over the past decade or so? And is it justified in your view? I think what would this issue in Canada and the U.S. and certainly the Occupy movements and the response from governments to uh, the financial uh, crisis. You know, folks saw that you know these, in some cases, uh, fairly profitable financial institutions were getting bailed out. It created a uh, kind of a social fissure uh, that prompted uh, people to protest. Uh, you know, so I, it's it's a real it's a real um, catalyst. But I think when you look at the over uh, the data over time, you get a bit of a different picture. It's, it's funny that, you know, inequality in the 2000s uh, is higher in Canada than what it was in the 70s. But since the 2000s, you know, inequality has in measured in different ways has either flatlined or declined. So the, the issue of inequality growing is it just not, doesn't align um, with, with the data. I think in, in, in the U.S., that's a bit different. So there's, there's this, you know, we're conflating, um, sort of insights from what, what was occurring in the U.S., uh, and importing them into Canada. And I think, you know, f- for whatever reason, 
governments have been able to use that talking point to drive a certain agenda and a certain narrative. But again, if you look at the the inequality data in Canada, it's it's falling uh, over the last you know twenty years, which is interesting on its own. But but separate from what's happening with inequality, we also have a fairly robust set of institutions in Canada that allow people to improve their lot in life. And that is something that I think we should celebrate. It doesn't mean that, you know, the work is done. We should think about how do we foster more mobility over one's life and how do we foster more mobility across generations? And I think there's a a lot of uh, things that we can do uh, to improve things. But, but again, the reality is we're not the U.S. where they have high levels of inequality uh, and, and, rel- and relatively lower levels of mobility. But I would say this, Sean, I think part of, part of me uh, struggles um, uh, when, you, when you look at the outcomes in Canada. I think one of the reasons we have greater uh, mobility, both intergenerationally and over one's life, has to do with the income ladder being uh, shorter than it is in places like the U.S. So, you know, I worry about things like, you know, how do we make Canada uh, a more productive place? How do we become more innovative and entrepreneurial? Because, you know, we need more of that to, to drive, you know, jobs and incomes and tax revenues for governments in the future. And I think there's a tendency for, for, for those opportunities to not be as great in Canada as they are, say, in the U.S., so when we have a shorter ladder and you know less income inequality and more mobility, is that really something that we want, or do we want to start thinking about ways to extend that ladder so that you know if people are really good at what they do, they're getting rewarded for it, and we're providing the incentives for people to to move up and stay in Canada and reap the benefits of of their of their efforts. Now, as long as we have that mobility that we talked about, we're we're maintaining that mobility. Uh, a longer ladder, I don't think, should be uh, a major source of concern. In fact, I think it could be a benefit when it comes to encouraging things like more innovation and entrepreneurship. Yeah, fascinating insights there, Charles. Maybe I just make two points for listeners. The first is that research by Francis Fong shows that in the Canadian context, income inequality is almost solely an urban phenomenon. That is to say, the income distribution outside of our major centers is actually clustered around um, a, a pretty small band. And given that many of our communities outside of our major centers are also struggling with economic stagnation and outward mobility, et cetera, one can't help but think that many of those places would actually be prepared to trade off higher levels of inequality if it meant more jobs, investment, and economic dynamism. The second point I would just raise quickly, um, because I think there's so much insight in what you said, is Canada has a higher median income than the United States, but lower per capita GDP. And it's like interesting as a, as a conceptual question to ask ourselves, which society is better? Which society would you want to live in? And to the extent that there are trade-offs between greater income equality on one hand, but greater dynamism and innovation on the other, how should we think about those trade-offs? A lot of great insight there. Before we move on, though, I just want to put to you, you mentioned earlier that, well, there is a positive story with respect to social mobility and intergenerational mobility that we shouldn't be complacent either. Do you want to maybe just elaborate a bit on what you think policymakers might do to further boost 
social mobility and inter, intergenerational mobility in Canada? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a tough question. But, and I would actually say, I'll take maybe a step back, Sean, and say that I haven't been kind of studying this uh, in, in recent years uh, as closely as I, as I was a decade ago. But my sense is that based on the work from Statistics Canada, that social mobility, uh, kind of broadly defined, is still alive in Canada, but it's, it's decreasing uh, in, the last, uh, in the last several years. So um, that's, that alone, I think, is, is reason enough for us to have the conversation about, well, what can you do to foster greater mobility? And look, I think this is, I think this is a, it's a tough one for many reasons because I think it cuts across uh, a number of areas um, related to labor mobility. Are there policies in place that keep uh, Canadians in low opportunity regions? Are there ways to increase opportunities in low opportunity regions? So there's like a very kind of robust dimension to, to, to this conversation. But I would say ultimately, um, two things about how to foster more mobility. I think it starts with education. You know, in Canada, we do have a, a fairly robust uh, public education system. There are some concerns about how um, we've performed in recent years. Some declining uh, kind of scores on international tests is, is, is reason for concern. But, you know, overall, it's, it's, it's served Canadians, I think, relatively well, but there's a lot that can be done to improve educational outcomes. And in, in my view, uh, one of the things that we, we need to think more about is how can we provide more uh, educational choices for Canadians across the income ladder so that we're not in a situation where, you know, only the upper income families in Canada can afford these elite schools if they're dissatisfied with the public school in which, you know, they're, they're located in. I think we want to, you know, figure out um, policies that encourage people in low income areas to take advantage of, of higher quality education uh, areas. And I think, so what does that mean in practical terms? It can mean a whole host of things in terms of, you know, vouchers and educational subsidies for lower income uh, families, I think it could uh, cross, you know, regulatory uh, regulatory areas. For instance, if we have public schools being solely public school enrollment being solely driven by the neighborhood in which one lives, you can see, you can easily see a problem where you know with high housing costs, certain families being kind of relegated to maybe uh, low quality schools. And I think having things like open enrollment that would allow uh, families to cross school catchments would be another kind of policy uh, uh, initiative. You know, uh, Ross Chetney, the economist, uh, has talked talked quite eloquently about the importance of diversity of having, uh, you know, families and from all socioeconomic statuses mix in together. And that could be a driver of more mobility. So, so, so to, you know, put it in short, when it comes to education, I do think that more school choice and allowing low-income families uh, the ability to take advantage of higher quality education would be would be helpful. And I think this also, given the relationship with pe- where people live, I think housing is 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 an equally important one because um, you know with how high housing costs and the relationship between public school catchments, there's uh, a real emphasis for policymakers to figure figure out 
options on how we can make uh, housing more affordable in diverse areas uh, for for Canadians across the income ladder. And I think that gets into a whole uh, series of, of, of discussions about how can we improve uh, housing options um, and making uh, them uh, available uh, for Canadians right across the income spectrum. Because I do think ultimately uh, where people are located will help uh, help dictate where their kids go to school and the quality of their schools and, and ultimately education and investments in human capital will drive uh, future mobility. Let me just say for listeners who are interested in Charles' observations about the role of education policy in general and the issue of educational pluralism in particular as a key means by which we can pursue higher rates of social mobility, that the week of uh, September 5th, we'll have an episode of Hub Dialogues with education policy expert Dini Van Pelt precisely on some of the policy reforms that Charles is talking about to, in effect, ensure that access to a diversity of educational opportunities is extended to all Canadian children as opposed to those uh, with the means to pursue them. Charles, it's fair to say that in the more than decade and a half that you've been involved in the world of public policy, there's been a backsliding on taxes, deficits and debt, and the role of markets in allocating scarce resources in the economy. In effect, a backsliding from the types of market reforms that really took shape in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. Now, I don't blame you personally uh, for these reversals, but I'd be interested in your views on why you think they've been occurring. What's the underlying story here? So, Sean, I'm a bit torn uh, on 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 your um, on your description of the state of affairs. On the one hand, uh, you know, I I could see I could agree with you, but on the other. Um, I don't know if the evidence is that clear. So if you look at uh, globally, measures of economic freedom, which are effectively trying to measure the role of markets, they show that globally, we're seeing more economic freedom over time, uh, certainly over the last uh, 20 years. So maybe there's a situation where within you know parts of the developed world, like Canada, uh, like the US, there's some backsliding, but overall, globally, we're seeing more economic freedom. We're seeing more people uh, being pushed out of uh, very uh, destitute levels of poverty, and that's something that I think is positive, um, and would 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 suggest that the the role of markets are are, are is still strong. Uh, but but on the other hand, let's look at Canada because maybe there's a there's a story that you can tell that goes a different way. But but in my view, there I think it's still not clear. So we've we've unambiguously seen. A larger role of government uh, in our economy in Canada, you know, demonstrated by total levels of government spending as a share of, of GDP in the past several years. But what I think is really interesting is that uh, we haven't seen a, a concurrent increase in the overall taxes that people pay for the spending, uh, and that's driven this wedge uh, we've seen. You know, I don't want to speak about a particular government, but but overall, we're seeing, you know, uh, more deficits and, and certainly uh, a growth in government debt. Uh, now, why is that happening? I think there's a couple of reasons. Part of it is a rational response. Um, during this period of growth in government, you know, the the, the wedge or the, the, the debt that's been accumulated 
is is essentially uh, on a low level of interest. We've seen historically low low levels of interest, which have in effect provided an incentive for governments to spend more than what they bring in on, on taxes uh, because the money is relatively cheap to borrow. We've seen the same thing happen at the individual level. Household debt is has has increased in in, in the in the last uh, several years, in part because the cost of borrowing has gone down. So at the government level, this fiscal illusion I, I think is has allowed people to demand or accept more a uh, greater role for government because they're not seeing the cost. They're they're not seeing the concurrent increase in their tax burden. And the debt that's being accumulated isn't resulting in a significant interest payment. So that, that to me would suggest that, you know, there's, there's something else going on there. While, while there's growth in government, we're, you know, we haven't completely tossed away, um, you know, uh, a preference for, for low taxes and, and, uh, and markets. Uh, and I would also say that, you know, what's, what's happened in the last, you know, 12, 15 years is, is, is also really important. We've had two major recessions. First, you know, the, the financial uh, crisis, which has, you know, disrupted uh, a steady uh, state whereby governments in Canada had prioritized deficit reduction and lower taxes. And that, uh, that, that shock kind of was the first thing that, that, that changed the trajectory. And in some cases, governments never really recovered from it. And then we have the pandemic where, you know, we saw uh, a doubling in the federal, uh, federal spending in one year and, and a whole series of shocks that, that hit government budgets. So I think, um, to me, when we take the longer view, uh, maybe things aren't as, you know, as dour as we think. Uh, but even, you know, that in mind, there's certainly been some shocks in, in, in recent years and in the past 15 years that has pushed up the role of government. Um, but I think the way I view this, Sean, uh, taking, uh, you know, an even bigger step back, what is the trust level of government right now among, among citizens? I, I think, uh, you know, I've seen some polls on this that suggest that it's relatively low. Uh, government's, uh, citizens aren't, um, quick to pass along. Uh, decision-making power to, to institutions for a variety of reasons, mainly because of failures, recent major failures. I don't think we're I don't think we're at that inflection point, but I think that to the extent that we've seen a movement towards greater intervention, uh, greater deficit, uh, greater taxes, a lot of this kind of can be explained away. And 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 if it is a shift, my sense is that you know these things are cyclical, and as we see. Interest rates rise. The the penalty on government debt will be uh, will be felt by on government budgets, and I think we'll we'll start to see a shift uh, away from uh, from recent trends. That's a, a thoughtful and nuanced answer, which is a, a good segue to my next question. We've known each other for roughly a decade, Charles, and my sense is that you've changed a bit. You've mellowed. You're less dogmatic than you used to be, including on public policy issues. Two part question. Why do you think you've become more pragmatic? And second, what issue have you changed your mind on the most? Well, uh, I think Sean, uh, you know, age <laughs> is part of is part of that. Um, more experience, more more life experience, more work experience, kind of has a, a humbling effect on 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 people. It certainly has on me. But I would attribute a lot of uh, you know my pragmatism 
to my time in government. And, and that's really understanding the things we kind of talked about earlier that there is a uh, reality to public policy making that you kind of have to, uh, to appreciate. And, you know, having that experience has, has really shaped uh, the way I, I view uh, policy, politics, and, and economics uh, today. Let me ask a penultimate question. You've spent a lot of time reading and thinking about leadership. In your view, is leadership innate or is it something someone can practice and learn? And what do you think most people misunderstand about what makes an effective leader? So I think it's a combination of, of both uh, innate qualities and things that you can learn. I think the innate part is that you um, want to be a leader and there are certain characteristics uh, that, that, are, that are helpful in, in becoming a good leader. But I think a lot of it is, is, is learned as well. I think, you know, when I think of what makes uh, an effective leader, I think about things like having a strong vision for your team, having a clear sense of purpose, um, knowing where you're going. Uh, I think those are really uh, important um, in, in leading a group, leading a team. I do believe that um, the, the belief in, in what you're trying to do uh, is, is also critical because sometimes you can uh, have a vision of where you want to go. And it may seem to be um, unrealistic, but, but a sort of unwavering uh, conviction is, is, is really crucial. Uh, I could talk about this for, 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 for hours, but I, I think things like accountability are, are, are crucially important uh, for, for good leaders. Uh, you know, calling uh, your team out on, on things, and, you know, demonstrating that you're willing to take uh, responsibility yourself for for both the wins and the losses. So I, I think leadership is a it's probably a conversation that we could uh, we could have uh, separately. But but certainly it's it's something that um, as as a person who is kind of devoted to self improvement and wanting to be better, I, I think about leadership a lot. And uh, those are some of the characters drive. Uh, effective, effective leaders. And I, and I do think that probably one of the biggest, you know, points of misunderstanding is that, you know, it's being a leader isn't about being popular. It's about uh, a steadfast kind of focus on the end goal and delivering results. And I think, you know, sometimes people can perceive uh, effective, uh, effective people that, that are good leaders as being kind of difficult or, or, um, inflexible or rigid, but ultimately, I think you, you need those qualities um, to uh, to move the dial forward. It doesn't mean that you don't account for, you know, feedback and, and, and all that sort of stuff, getting help and self-awareness for when you're, when you're in, in unfamiliar territory or when you need advice, that's all, it's all really important. But um, I think being an effective leader requires you to make tough decisions that, you know, sometimes you might be alone uh, on. Um, but ultimately you're, you're successful in getting to where you need to be rather than being the most popular person. As you know, my wife, Caitlin, and I are having our second child early next year. You have two kids, Christian, who I mentioned earlier, and Josephine, who's a little artist and a sweet girl. Uh, they're wonderfully adjusted kids and have a special relationship between them. I'm always struck, for instance, how affirming and positive Christian is to his little sister. As we prepare to shift to man-on-man -man defense here, what advice do you have? 
well, I'm not, a, I'm not a parenting expert, that's for sure. My my first advice is as to marry up uh, and have a partner that um, is better than you. And you've done that with, with Caitlin. So that's the first thing that, that you want to do. But, you know, in terms of the, the sibling dynamic, Sean, what I would say is, you know, when we approach things, me and my wife, we we had a very uh, similar vision in terms of how we wanted our kids to interact with each other. And we started basically from when, when Josephine, uh, my youngest, uh, was born. Um, and we, we, we tried to make her brother, Christian, uh, give, her, give him a stake in her success um, and not view uh, this new body in the, in the family as a threat or, or to not see it as a zero-sum game that, that you know, her success was, would fuel his success. And uh, we tried to foster that relationship of kind of looking out for her um, in a number of ways and, and, and just nurturing her. We, you know, she, we would give her a bottle. We'd ask him to hold it, small things like that, because we ultimately wanted uh, our, our son and, and daughter to have a relationship that, you know, wasn't one where there was a destructive competition between the two of them. And so we, we had a, we made a kind of conscious decision, um, at the outset, uh, to, to take steps that we thought, uh, would help. And, and it's always, uh, good to show the older one what the benefits of, of, you know, of, of nurturing are. And we, you know, we talked about, it's about being a leader and, and, uh, responsibility, things like that, that would encourage the kind of behavior that, that we, uh, that we ultimately, uh, hoped he would demonstrate. And I'll say one thing, maybe, maybe this is, uh, not appropriate for this, uh, for this podcast, but, um, there was a situation this week, in fact, where both, you know, my wife and I were so proud of, uh, of this kind of dynamic between our kids. They're at a, at a day camp, um, and they're in the same, uh, class together. They had uh, they had lunch, and uh, Christian had finished his lunch and was like, "Oh, I'm so hungry, Josie." Um, still, and you know what? She gave him her favorite snack, which is uh, you know fishies. I don't know if you, these fish fish crackers. She gave them up to her brother because she didn't want him to be hungry. I know that sounds small, but um, when you're when you're seven and nine years old, giving up your favorite snack is a big deal. So we're really. Uh, you know, we were obviously very, very pleased with, with what happened. Well, uh, those are great insights there, Charles, as there's been great insights throughout this conversation. I, I promised a free-flowing one, and I think we've uh, delivered for Hub listeners. Charles Lamam, I want to thank you for joining me today at Hub Dialogues and look forward to having you back on the program soon. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.